Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. Hi, I'm Brandon Ward. We want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. Today I will be joined by Deepak Raju via Zoom to discuss the topic of pastors and pornography. Deepak Raju serves as an associate pastor at Capitol Hills Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He has written and co-written multiple books on pastoral ministry and counseling, including Pornography, Fighting for Purity, The Pastor and Counseling, The Basics of Shepherding Members in Need, and On Guard, Preventing and Responding to Child Abuse at Church. Deepak, brother, it is uh, such a joy to have you joining us today uh, to talk about pastors and pornography, a very important uh, topic. Uh, so thank you for, for being here. Glad to do it. Glad to have the opportunity to talk about this. So I just want to start before we get into any in-depth conversation about, about this issue. I think it would be really helpful uh, to first define pornography uh, is pornography confined to content found on pornog- pornographic websites and magazines, or, or is it much more than that? So as you're working uh, and, and, and interacting with people struggling with this, what is your typical definition? Yeah, so let's, let's think about a basic definition. When I'm talking about pornography, I'm referring to a person who views naked people through images, through videos, through even fantasizing about them through their own selfish pleasure, a Christian's going to arouse themselves through someone else's nakedness and usually through their sexual acts too. So nakedness and sex are exposed, selfishly exploited, consumed by a bystander who's not their husband or wife. So in today's world, there's an ever-expanding way to see sexual content. I mean, we're talking about sexting, phone sex, reading, about sex and trashy fiction, uh, fan fiction or erotica novels. Uh, now even virtual pornography is the latest front. So there, there are ever expanding ways to take in sexual content. But the basic idea is you're viewing someone's nakedness or sex through one of these many means um, and that, that, that's essentially what we're talking about if we're, we're formally defining it. If I'm theologically defining it, I'm going to use concepts like voluntary slavery. I, I've chosen this so often, now I have become enslaved to it, or desires run amok. Like the desires have become so controlling of my life, they're now ruling desires, and they dictate how I live. So that would be like First is the formal idea of what this means. It's more the Webster's kind of definition. The second is more the theological definition. If we're going to put biblical concepts behind it, what are we talking about if we're trying to define what pornography is? I think that's really helpful. I think having both a formal and a theological definition are really helpful in trying to navigate what is this that we're dealing with when people come to us uh, with this issue, Uh, which brings me to my next question. Uh, And since 2016, we've seen many states uh, declare pornography as a public health emergency. 
Um, and so that kind of begs the question, is it really that big of an issue? You know, uh, how often do you come across both men and women that struggle with this? And should pastors just assume that they have people in their congregation struggling with this? Well, we're a, a congregation of about 800 and 900 members uh, in downtown DC and our average age is 30. So we're dominated by 20 and 30 year olds. So you're not surprised that we run into this a lot. Um, it's not restricted to those age groups, um, but it, it does seem to be more pervasive at younger ages. And especially I'm now dealing with the generation that has grown up on the internet. Uh, they don't know what it's like to live without it. So we're talking about a, a, a group of folks who all they know is technology as a way of life. So if you look at the statistics, so you look at a variety of studies, typically like you know, one study I looked at recently, 63% of adult men had looked at pornography at least one time while at work in the past three months. 38% had done so uh, more than once. And 36% of adult women had looked at pornography at least one time in the past three months. 13% had done so more than once. So if you go across the studies, what you're gonna find is they average typically like 50 to 60% men reporting that they've looked at pornography and then women typically somewhere around 30 to 40%. So what you see is the issue is clearly growing and it's even growing among women. So you have to attack it as if it's not just a man's issue. If you attack this as if it's just a man's issue, you cause women who struggle with it to feel an immense amount of shame because you haven't acknowledged that they struggle with it too. And you make them feel like they're there's something abnormal with them because they're struggling with it. Women shouldn't be struggling with it when in fact, lots of women do. Now, you know, sadly, the, 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 the top ranking porn website, Pornhub, gives us all kinds of statistics that show that this is also clearly a women's issue. Uh, in the 2019 annual review, worldwide, worldwide women viewers made up to a minimum of 10% of all hits on Pornhub. And in several places in the world, so Paraguay, Ecuador, Nambia, and several countries in Central America, the women made up as many as 50% of the hits on Pornhub. And the worldwide average for women viewers on Pornhub was 32%. So it's clearly a problem for both men and women. Which is challenging because at least from what, what I've seen, it's, it's framed so often as just a men's issue. Um, both That's right you know, in the culture and in the church. Uh, so it's really important to bring out um, that this isn't just a man's issue. This is both a male and female issue. So real quick, if you could uh, just walk me through your typical process when you're counseling someone who is struggling with pornography. Um, you know, our, our topic this month is on pastors and counseling. So if we can safely assume that there's a good chance uh, that we have people in our congregation struggling with this, how do we counsel them? Yeah, so say somebody comes to my office and confesses pornography, the first conversation is gonna have a lot to do with access. I think an important first step is to shut down the access 
the fact that someone has been able to access something regularly in the last few days or weeks shows me that they haven't adequately built a firewall around all the access points. So I wanna be brutal in helping them shut down the access points in their life. So I'm gonna ask a lot of very specific questions because I'm not presuming they know all the ways to put up firewalls or I wanna see if they are using all the means possible to put up the firewall to protect themselves. So I've become an expert in, in using and, and navigating through people's phones. So I will, in a session, I'll say to someone, if it sounds like they're not sure how to handle their phone and the technology that they have, I'll say, let's pull out your phone and let's look at it right now. And we'll look at the, the restrictions. We'll look at the different, um, the different search engines that are available. We'll look at the apps. We'll just look at everything on their phone to help them figure out how best to shut down their phone and put up a decent firewall to protect them. And my goal is the general principle is to protect them from themselves. I wanna I want put the, the wall so tightly constricted around their heart that it makes it really hard for them to access anything and be brutal about that. Because if I can slow down the, the access to pornography, I can help their heart from getting overwhelmed with it. So that's just the first step. And that, that doesn't solve the problem because then next we need to go to the deeper heart motivational issues. Uh, but if I, if I go right to the heart issues, the deeper issues that motivate them, and yet they go out and they access pornography that night, I, I haven't done them any good. But I need to slow down their steps in being able to access it. And then it creates a lot of room for us to be able to then go into some of the deeper issues. There's just more room for them to begin to think through what it is that they're, they're struggling with. Um, so once we get into the deeper heart issues, I wanna start exploring and help them come to understanding what, what motivates them. Because a lot of guys reduce this to simply an issue of lust and that's it in their mind. And yet there's a lot more to it. So whether they're using it as a means of escape or, or a way to find affirmation or they're living a boring pietistic lifestyle and they just want more adventure in their life. There's just, there's dozens of reasons why a guy might or a gal might act out and we wanna help them think through it. So, you know, that, that's the most basic part of it. I'll throw in a, just a few other things that I think pastors, disciplers, counselors wanna think about. You wanna take a holistic approach. A lot of times as you're interacting with it, you reduce it just to the level of their sin. And you don't want anyone to just be defined by being a porn addict. They're much more than that, especially we understand them to be a Christian. You want to discern fake repentance. You don't, if they keep struggling with it and they keep coming back and confessing that, and, and there's not a substantial change, there's not really much success in changing, their repentance is probably pretty shallow. And so you're going to need to press into that repentance. Um, you want to cultivate faith. Often we're telling people to like turn from this, but we're not focusing them on what it means to trust in Christ. So I'm, I'm looking for a faith-driven repentance um, in their life. And, and I, I, I wanna not just narrow the whole conversation to just simply this sin. I just be careful to look at the, the whole scope of a person's life. So I love David Paulson's picture of a, a multiplex theater where he describes in each theater, there is a different aspect of that person's life. So if we 
took someone and, you know, because sin, sexual sin, is the marquee red letter sin that draws all of our attention. And so say in theater one, it, it's the porn struggles. Theater two, maybe a guy or a gal has, has stress at work. In theater three, there's a fractured relationship with a parent. In theater four, they have interest in a girl, but they don't know whether they should date him or not because of the struggle. In theater five, they're angry at God because of this ongoing sin. In theater six, they're just struggling in basic spiritual disciplines. Well, I, I need to get at all of those things. I, I, I need to understand the whole scope of their life and understanding that there's interconnections between all these things. If, if I'm able to address the anger at God or the struggles in dating or the stress at work, it's like th throwing a stone in a lake. There's a ripple effect that, that pervades a person's life when you start with beginning to work through some of the things in their heart. Um, and then, you know, what, what's common is now, now you're dealing with a generation that they're not just showing up after they acted out the first time. Many guys who talk to me, many gals who talk to me, have been struggling for years. So you've got to address their weariness. Um, you've got you to give them hope for the long-term struggle. That's just a couple of things. I mean, I could say a lot more about that, but that just hits on a couple of areas which are, are ways to begin to interact when somebody comes in. There's a lot of different ways I could step in and have that conversation. No, that's really helpful and, and, and really good. I, I really love how you stressed repentance in there, that it's not just a change of action, that there is a change of heart that takes place, which brings me to the next question. Uh, what would you say to someone who says their addiction to pornography doesn't impact anyone other than themselves. So why should they worry? Good question. Let me, uh, let's step back and think about this just a little bit of what, what we need to think in terms of how to help them understand that this is not just them. So uh, first thing I want to do is I want to help them understand what lust is. We understand from scripture that sexual desires, physical, emotional, spiritual craving for intimacy of the opposite sex is really a good thing. And that's a gift from God. God in his kindness gives us a delight in a spouse and allows two people to lovingly and mutually give themselves each to the other and receive pleasure each from the other. So it's not merely physical. Sex is a spiritual act when it's done in the context of a covenant union between a husband and wife. So if there's good desires for sexual intimacy, then when we think of lust, I think what we're talking about is uh, the, the desires for intimacy that have gone bad. So when you think of how biblical authors describe uh, the term lust, you get this negative sense. Lust is spoken of in, in scripture as an inappropriate sex or a warning against sexual immorality. So like Ezekiel 23, 5 to 20, Matthew 5, verse 28, Romans 1, 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, 2 Peter 2, 10, all references to helping us think about what lust is. So in, in this sense, I think John Freeman from Harvest USA's definition is really helpful in understanding uh, lust. John Freeman says lust, he describes lust as that heart hunger in me that denies and disavows those made in the image of God, whether it's another man or another woman and reduces them to what I can get out of them to feed and fill my hungry heart right now. 
This means that by nature, our lust twists, devours, consumes, and uses others for our own benefit. And what I like about that is it's not just talking about my disordered desires. It's talking about how my disordered desires devour, consume, and use others for my own selfish gain. So that my sexual cravings are not just, I want you, but I'm going to use you and exploit an image bearer to satisfy my carnal desires. You know, that, so that's, that's the whole first thought. You just got to understand what lust really is. You got to understand the nature of lust. But the second thing I would say is, man, that, that man or that woman that you're looking at, they're someone's son or daughter. They belong to someone. So as a father of two boys and three girls, you know, it just breaks my heart that we would be using someone's son or daughter. I mean, any parent would be brokenhearted to know that their child has gone that far in terms of giving themselves over in order to perpetuate the sexual industry. Um, so, you know, put, put yourself in the position of being someone who is a parent and your worst nightmare is that your child would be used by the sex industry in order to make more money off of themselves, to exploit them in this way. Well, well, well put, that, put that mindset on and that should show you that it's not just about you. That's just two, I mean, there's more ways I can answer that, but that's just two ways in thinking about it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. I mean, it's important to realize that there's a demand which gives, which fuels the industry in and of itself. Uh, and especially with what we've seen in the news recently in the New York Times with just the kind of content that's on these websites, mm -hmm. uh, it's, there's much, there's a bigger issue when you, then pornography, if you're asking the question, how does this affect anybody but me? I think uh, that's really helpful what you were saying. Um, so you shared a little bit about when you're counseling other people, how you look at, you know, their search engines, help them familiarize themselves with their phones. What are some ways that individuals struggling with this can fight the temptation uh, when it begins to become an issue again? Well, I, I love Jesus's words in Matthew 26. Uh, when Jesus arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's leaving his disciples behind, he gave them just one command. Watch with me. It's Matthew 26, 38. And he went away and prayed to the Father and then returned to find his disciples asleep. And so Jesus turned to Peter of all people and said, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew 26, it's verses 40 to 41. So in fighting temptation, we've got to follow Jesus' command to watch and pray. So, you know, watchfulness is a constant state of alert and vigilance against temptation. You know, it's similar to the military idea of situational awareness. It's just a proactive posture, posture where we pay attention to what's going on, both in ourselves and what, what surrounds us. Any seasoned and gritty bodyguard practices situational awareness to prevent confrontations whenever possible. So I, I you know, I, I got this idea of watchfulness from Puritan John Owen. <laughs> uh, Owen talks about this in his, in his classic work on temptation. Uh, and he gives a lot of helpful advice in fighting temptation. So, you know, some of the basic things Owen would say would be like, believers have to stay awake so that they can be able to detect temptation early 
rather than waiting until it's too late. Or you shouldn't be surprised that if you're having a long conversation with evil and becoming all too familiar with it, then after a time, it's going to be less startling and a lot more comforting. Um, or you should be watchful for those occasions and know your heart and your life well enough where you have a propensity to be provoked or give yourself over and get entangled to sin. And so you need to understand what those situations are in your life and be proactive to it. So that's, that's you know, Owen's watch and pray. Now, practically, I think a lot of men and women tend to give into temptation and confess long after, after they've acted out. But I, I think they need to rethink how they attack temptation by beginning to understand what it means to be transparent really early on. And here's what I mean. I often give, if I'm sitting across from a man or a woman and working through this issue, I'll pull out a piece of paper and draw for them a river. And, and upstream at the top of the river, what I'm going to describe to them is, is when they first think about it, they first have a feeling. There's first an inclination to just simply consider acting out. And then midstream is going to be, say, for example, they, they can't act out at work, so they begin scheming on their way home. But what they could do that. And so, you know, single person, late at night, after 10 o'clock, in their room with the door closed. That's when they could typically act out. Well, so they'll begin thinking or planning or scheming about that on the way home. That's midstream. They're, they're contemplating it. Or, you know, in the olden days, if somebody was beginning to think about it, then that's when they would go to the, the adult store to go get the DVD so they could watch it. And now it could be somebody begins to make plans for how they're going to go get internet access if they don't have it at home. Whatever it takes to get in a position to be able to act out. And then downstream is acting out. Downstream is like going ahead and viewing pornography, watching a video, uh, doing, doing something that causes you to commit sexual sin. Well, I'm trying to train people to let their accountability in when they're upstream. When, when, when that thought first occurs, when that feeling first happens, or, you know, say some, something sexually appealing is within their view. So somebody immodestly dressed walks by them on the street. It provokes a thought. It provokes a feeling. It can even stir up a reaction in their body. It arouses them. That's the point in which they need to act. Um, to people often wait till they're too far downstream with temptation. Temptation is now long gone and they're quickly moving towards acting out. And, and so the earlier we approach it, the quicker we become transparent, the faster we draw people in, the better it'll be in fighting temptation overall. What would you say uh, to someone who is actively struggling or may, may just be struggling on and off? What would you say to them are the dangers of unconfessed sin in this area? Yeah, well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hard things that happen when you hold on to sin and you don't confess it. So, for example, um, it begins to deaden your conscience. Uh, guilt piles on top of guilt. Shame piles on top of shame. And a dead conscience is dangerous because it's capable of doing things 
that you could never imagine. It leads to lying and hypocrisy. You know, it leads to a double-mindedness and a double life. Uh, and that, that hiding and not confessing leads to a very dark part of life that scripture keeps warning us against, not living in darkness, Ephesians 5, but moving in the direction of the light. It, and you start with a dead conscience, lying hypocrisy, uh, self-justifications. Uh, it leads to doubting our salvation. We begin to question ourselves. You're not surprised when you hear someone struggling with it say something like, I don't know how I could be a Christian if I continue to do this. Um, that, that kind of uh, mindset begins to creep in and it becomes more pervasive. And so you, what you start seeing is this slippery slope. I could add in more as we add in shame and pulling away from community, not being in the word, hardening of a heart through all this. And that slippery slope takes us one step and another step and another step and another step further and further away from God. Mm, that's good. And I, and I agree. And I think that even with that sin being um, hidden or unconfessed, absolutely, it's, it's, it's so much better, whether it's a, an issue currently going on or even something in your past to confess that uh, and know that if it is something in your past that it's there and can easily pop back up again in the future. So uh, one of the questions that I want to ask that I feel really is really an important question is how do you counsel the spouse? Where does the spouse fit in uh, with someone who is struggling with pornography? Do you usually tell them that, that that's something they need to let their spouse know up front, or is there kind of a process uh, in, in letting them in on this? Yeah, so let's take a, a typical scenario. Say a husband has been struggling with pornography. The wife finds out. The husband confesses. Well, how do we help the wife along, along with this? Because often all the literature and the conversation is how do you help the addict recover? And one of the typical mistakes we make is not ministering, caring for, and pouring into the wife at the same time. So, you know, in helping the wife, first thing we need to do is to help her turn back to God and plead for help. There's a storm of emotion that flows out of the wife's heart. She's angry, hurt, bitter, confused, hopeless, maybe even helpless. And all of these emotions show up at some point or another. Marriage is meant for ex exclusivity. So when the sexual covenant is violated, it hurts down to the very core of the relationship and it cuts very deep. Between moments of I hate you and I can't do this anymore, a wife's heart wanders almost everywhere as she feels like there's a dark cloud hovering over their marriage. So what I want her to do, first and foremost, is to turn to the Lord as the refuge. She needs the Lord as a refuge because at that moment, her husband is not safe. And so Christ has to be her husband at that moment. He is, he is her savior. He's the groom of the church. So he is always trustworthy when her husband is not. If she's angry at God or doubting the Lord's mercy, then she's got to reconcile with God first before she can look to her marriage. And in the face of another pornography incident, 
then the cross stands a thousand feet in the background and she can barely see it. Now, once we've done that, you know, once we've helped her to move back towards God, then we can think about her moving towards her husband. But I always want to make first things first. I want to help her in a relationship with the Lord, because if we don't do that, then everything else with her husband is going to be much harder. Now, what, what do we do in regards to a husband? First, I want the wife to know that she shouldn't blame herself for her husband's sin. There's a real temptation for her to think, if I only paid more attention to him, or if I hadn't gained so much weight, or maybe there's something wrong with me, or maybe he just doesn't desire me anymore, and all these insecurities of the heart are exposed, and maybe she has sinned in the marriage, but the husband's pornography sin is not her fault. Then when she's tempted to believe she's all alone, she's, she's going to need to fight that because she, she needs to understand that not only are there lots of other couples struggling with this, but the devil wants to do everything he can to isolate her. My husband's the only one who's struggling with this wretched problem. And she looks out on Sunday morning and sees all those happy faces and presumes she's the only marriage that's got this issue. None of them are going to be struggling with this at this moment, or none of them are struggling like this, or I'm the only one who's got this problem. But th that is a typical tactic of the evil one to make a wife and a husband feel isolated. They just don't want to do that. But when the time's right, she should share her anger, her pain, or hurt with her husband. And he should be, he should be kind and loving and gracious in, in regards to his wife needing to be open and share, honestly. They, they need to be able to interact over that hurt. She needs to be able to share her pain. And they need to be able to work, begin to work through that. Uh, she should fight the temptation to give herself over to bitterness and isolating herself, not being willing to talk about it. You know, that bitterness is a poison that's really a slow death to the marriage. And so in, in, in a safe and loving way, being able to open up and start having honest conversations with each other. And the husband should be transparent. I, I would require husbands to be completely transparent. And I, I ask husbands, you know, to make sure she has passwords, to understand what transparency looks like specifically in their life, and, and for her to describe what transparency is as she understands it. So if she needs to check the phones, she needs to check the internet website, she needs to have access to those things because that's a part of the rebuilding of the trust. But the wife should avoid the temptation in doing all of that of becoming a cop. There's this false notion that if she can now check everything, she can somehow protect them from ever getting into trouble again. But that's just not true. That, that doesn't preserve her from it ever becoming an issue again. So she's got to avoid the temptation she has of trying to control the situation, which is going to be natural after that problem. The wife should also be careful about asking for all the excruciating details. Uh, a, a wife might feel like more knowledge is somehow going to give her more control, but the details, if she gets, if she gets privy to too many details, it begins to roll around in her mind like laundry in a spin cycle, and she can begin to ruminate on it, and it becomes really hard to shake. Whereas she, there's a certain level of information she needs to know, and then beyond that, it's just going to be really unhealthy for her. But you know, I often look at wives, and I tell them their job description, once we've gotten through these first stages of reconciling with God and having honest conversations with each other, is then to learn to be an ally with her husband against his sin. 
I mean, that, that's her role then, is to help him understand how to fight that sin and to come alongside of him to help him understand what it means to fight that sin. So the wife needs to deal honestly with her uh, sin before God and her husband, but she also needs to help her husband understand how to fight this sin. And that's where they become a partner in this. Rather than hiding and isolating himself, he needs to be able to be honest and open with his wife and build a culture in their marriage where there's trust and transparency and safety and security, which is what should define the marriage. And, you know, if he persists in that sin, the foundations can begin to crumble and there's bitterness that takes over. And so she's going to have to both be sure early on they both get help. They, they, they cannot do this on their own. So they have to be embedded in a church. They've got to have a community around them. They've got to have friends and a pastor and others involved. But especially if this is an ongoing issue, they're going to have to have other people who are engaged in this whole thing. A wife cannot take on the sole responsibility for accountability. That, that's a great way to put too much pressure on a marriage. Every marriage needs other partners, friends, people involved who are coming alongside a husband and wife. And I'm not just saying for pornography struggles. I'm saying this, is, this should be a norm in general. But then even more so when there's a significant issue like this, uh, which, which, which leads you to say, like, don't go scrambling around when your marriage is in trouble to find this. They should have been establishing this long before the issue hit their marriage so that when the issue comes, they know exactly who they're going to turn to in their own community, what pastors they turn to. Um, and and that, that'll help because she's got a long process of working through the bitterness and getting to a place of forgiveness. Because forgiveness is not just a decision, it's a process. And, and she may not be able to offer it right away. There's no excuse for a, for, for a Christian not to forgive. So she does have to forgive her husband, but she might need some time to work through some of the painful issues that are there. And so she needs other followers of Christ to come alongside of her and help her work through it so that a wife can finally then forgive her husband because unforgiveness is not an option for a Christian. So I don't want to rush her into it, but I also don't want to, to her, because if I rush her, then she's going to say it in, in an obligatory way, feeling like she needs to do this as a Christian, and yet her heart has not lined up with that. So I want to give her the time and get other people involved in her life to get her to a place where she can, she can genuinely pronounce forgiveness for her husband. And then her life begins to live as if she has genuinely forgiven him. Wow. There's so much to unpack there. Just so much wisdom with that. I think that it is very common to hear spouses, especially wives, um, struggle with, why does my husband struggle with this? I don't, I don't understand. Um, and, and so often they can feel attacked and like they in some way contributed to their husband going to this sin and, and, and taking part in this sin. Um, but I think that you did, you did a real excellent job just saying that even in this helping wives navigate this, that in the uh, trying to figure out how to overcome this, there are temptations there that exist for the wife and helping her husband get through this. And I also really just appreciated that uh, when, you, when you mentioned that, that the wife and the husband need a support staff, that this is not something that they need to do on their own, um, because that's very true. I mean, when 
one part of the body is suffering, all of us suffer and we need to be there and support um, and, and, and ultimately do it because we love those individuals, whether it's within the marriage or within the local church. So very, very helpful. So I want to ask this question before we move more into the ministry side of this with this issue um, with pastors. What does the road to redemption look like? So what does it look like when uh, you have somebody who's been struggling with this and now it seems that it's no longer as big of a struggle? Is this something that they need to constantly be aware of that this could pop back up or uh, is it kind of like in the movie when you see the car riding off into the sunset and it's happily ever after? When you say no longer as big of a struggle, do you mean that really essentially there's no more pornography in their life or it, it's just not as bad as it used to be? No more pornography in their life. Okay. Yeah, because if we're talking about no, no more pornography in their life, what I'm looking for is not for a guy to or now to just simply become lazy about how they handle the issue. I say that especially with, with this past decade, we've become such an over-sexualized culture and we're surrounded by sex all the time that you need to be vigilant, not just for one season, but I think over the long term. You know, I've, I, the privilege of serving with the elders in, in our congregation is that now that I'm in my early 50s, and I arrived here at the church in my 20s, I've been alongside a number of these guys for several decades. And, and in our 20s, as young guys struggling with pornography, what I've seen as these guys grow up and mature, get married, have children, take on more responsibility, like grow in godliness, is that they don't let down their guard. You see guys who are years removed but you see a kind of vigilance because they understand the seriousness of sin. They, they understand how quickly they can give themselves over to pride and overestimating their ability to handle sin. And so you see that they never want to underestimate how the evil one wants to undermine them or the power that sex has. So th there, there's a constant vigilance even years removed uh, from, from the problem. And so somebody might say, you mean I got to do all of this right now that I'm doing to protect myself? The addict thinks I got to be like this for the rest of my days. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> depends on your struggle. depends on how, how, what your battle has been like. But it, it doesn't mean we get to suddenly slack off years later. Now, does that mean everything's exactly the same? No, no, not at all. I mean, there, there's probably a lot more freedoms further down the road available to you that aren't available now because that's a consequence of your sin and struggling with things right now. But, but later on, it doesn't mean you get to be lazy about sexual sin. That's essentially what I, I would say, that, that you, you, if they're not struggling with it anymore, it doesn't mean they can be lazy about it. And not just la not being lazy, but, but doing so with humility. You know, so often when we, we see people struggling, especially pastors who disqualify themselves from ministry, and, and we look at that and we say, well, that's, you know, that's a shame. But the truth is that, is that each of us could easily be in that position if we're not careful. That's know? right. And so just doing so with humility, I think that's really helpful. So we've already established that pornography is something that many stumble upon and struggle with at a very early age. 
So realizing that pornography addictions often begin at a young age, what can pastors and churches do to help equip parents to navigate the issue with their children? Yeah, that's a great question. A couple of things I would say, you know, I think parents when approaching sexuality and instructing their children tend towards what is a, a approach of a one-time talk when the kids are sometimes in the teens, kind of get in, have the talk and then get out and then, and then leave the issue basically alone unless they really have to talk about it. But what I advocate is from early on establishing a family culture where there's an openness to not only talk about things honestly, but a deliberateness in teaching children a healthy biblical sexuality, being able to establish that this is a good gift, that this is something that God has given, that, you know, every, um, most children, once they get to their elementary and teenage years, clearly understand where babies come from. <laughs> uh, so it's not like you have to teach your kids uh, what's going on in some ways. And most parents now who have kids in private school or public school, they, they know that if they don't teach and instruct from early on, their kids are going to learn it from the playground chatter, from their friends, from watching things online. And so getting out ahead of this and instructing from early on. Now, we're talking about you know early ages. You do it developmentally appropriately. You have more limited information you're giving, but you're still trying to do it in a framework that helps the children begin to understand. God's basic framework, and you fill in more details and more thoughts, and more scripture, and more just a lot more as they keep getting older and older, to the point where you have a teenager, you're able to have a much more comprehensive conversation um, with them. So that at the typical age where a parent gives like the talk, it just shouldn't be a surprise when you get to those years, because you've been talking about it all along the way. So that also prepares kids to fight the dangers that are out there. So we we talk to our kids all the time about the fact that there are dangers out there. So mommy and daddy are not careful about the internet with them just simply because we like rules. We're careful about the internet because we're trying to protect them from all the dangers and all the people that in fact, daddy actually has to meet with to help them because their parents weren't careful. So I, that, that's one thing, you know, foster a worldview early on that understands the beauty of God's picture of sexuality the other thing is then provide resources. You know, just commend resources, put them in parents' hands so they understand like they, what it's like to read, think, talk about it. So looking, looking through and commending things that parents would find useful to even instruct their own children. Hmm. That's really helpful. So I wanna shift the conversation. I have two more questions. I wanna shift this conversation from counseling people who are struggling with pornography to pastors. Because uh, we know that this is not just an issue that affects members of churches. This, this affects even pastors uh, on occasions. Uh, so what are some safe ways that pastors themselves can find counsel and accountability, uh, maybe not even just in their battle against pornography, but just in sin in general? Because so often pastors can feel they're kind of the man on the lone island uh, with nobody to go to. Yeah, I, the, some of this gets into the basic culture that's established amongst the leadership of the church is is there a kind of culture in which the senior pastor is he isolated or does he have real friendships amongst the elders the other pastors the staff amongst the congregation does he have peers his own age within the congregation 
that he can look to and talk to. Um, so is there a healthy culture amongst the elders where a pastor is able to be honest with other elders? Or does he, is he stuck in isolation if he's struggling with something? And you know, that's, that, that's a, a good question for every pastor to ask. What, what's the kind of culture that's being established amongst my leadership team, amongst my elders, amongst the pastors within our church? So can, can he just share honestly with the elders when he's struggling, at least share with another elder who knows him really well? Um, but if, if that's not the case, because I just want to have a lot of sympathy for a guy who's in a deeply unhealthy church, which, you know, if he confesses any sin, the expectations for the pastor are so unrealistic, he's just going to be fired, especially a sin like sexual sin like this. So in which case, having another evangelical gospel-minded pastor within his community that he can be brutally honestly with that could come alongside of him is, is the next step. It's not my preferred step, but because I prefer him to be able to be honest within folks within his own congregation, especially with the other elders, pastors within his church. Um, but then being able to go to another pastor or, you know, just an older godly wise man within the church, if he's not, not actually an elder. Um, sometimes I've heard pastors uh, say they, they go to a retired pastor who's a member of his congregation, who, who will get a lot of the trials he goes through. And that's the person he goes to, to get counsel and support and think through things personally in his own life. And then, you know, a professional counselor, it would be the other outside option, being able to sort through some things. But, you know, with that idea of a, another pastor in the community or professional counselor, your goal is to be able to eventually be able to be honest with those within your leadership. It's not to be able to take your junk outside and to be able to, to hide it from everyone. I just never want to be able to hide it. Create, you want to create a, an opportunity to be transparent with those. And I'm not saying you need to share it with the whole church. Everybody has an inner circle. And so those who are in leadership with you, especially who are closest to you, who, who you have close relationships with, that you can be this kind of transparency. That's your goal to be able to be able to do something like that. But if you don't have that, especially in deeply unhealthy church situations, having another pastor in the community, a professional counselor you can turn to is a good place to go and talk through some of these things. Obviously, my caveat is I hope that you're able to be able to be honest in your marriage as a pastor. That, that goes without saying that you should be working through all these things with your spouse. No, that's such a good point uh, to, to be open and honest and openly communicate with your wife throughout all of this and for you to find someone in your congregation not to not to keep this hidden and unconfessed as we've already discussed really isn't an option but to find a way uh, find somebody that you can trust that can help you through this uh, last question what words of encouragement or caution might you give pastors listening right now who are struggling with pornography yeah it's a hard question to answer because it, my heart goes out to the pastor who's struggling right now but just just two two main things to say First would be the warning. If there's a consistent problem where a pastor's giving himself over to pornography regularly, I think we need to consider the fact that he's probably disqualified. It has to face up to that reality um, because scripture talks about, you know, for example, having a life that's above reproach. Uh, one of the basic qualifications would be a life of self-control. Uh, and that's not being demonstrated with the pastor who's regularly struggling with pornography. So considering the sad reality that he may be disqualified and he should consider if this is an issue that he's not getting over and is struggling with dealing with, 
that he may need to step out of the ministry. The encouragement is to the same grace that he preaches every Sunday to the congregation is the same grace that he needs to face this problem. So, you know, the danger in being in ministry and communicating God's word regularly is that you can simply just traffic in truth for other people and it not to apply to your own heart. And so you need the gospel for your own heart, which is where you, you, every time you preach, you're not just preaching it to others, you're preaching it to your own heart first. Every time you communicate God's word, you need to pray through it that the Lord applies it to your own life first before you go out and share it to, to those in your congregation. And so that grace that God has given that you've dedicated your life to giving to others is the same grace that you need. So helpful, brother. Uh, I want to thank you again for being, uh, for taking time out to have this discussion. And also, brother, real quick, you have a book coming out soon, right? Yeah, in October, Lord willing, a two-book set uh, that I've co-authored with Jonathan Holmes is coming out called Rescue Plan and Rescue Skills. Rescue Plan helps sort through a, an addiction, the theology of addictions, but then works through singleness, dating, marriage, teenagers, and women struggling with pornography and helps think through each one of those different um, life stages and, and, and lives, what, what it means to deal with pornography. Rescue Skills is uh, 23 skills that a discipler, counselor, pastor, parent, small group leader needs to employ in coming alongside of someone who's struggling. So the, the, these two books are primarily written for the disciplers who want to come alongside and help people. Um, so, you know, I've written material for the struggler. Now I'm written, writing material for those who want to be, be a help to those who are struggling. Um, and, you know, those skills are things like, what kind of questions do you ask? How do you probe the heart? How do you help someone who's struggling with weariness? How do you help them understand what real beauty is since sexual sin distorts our understanding of beauty? How do you help a numbed conscience? What do we do with the arousal in our body? You know, all kinds of things that a discipler wants to think through as they love on the person who's an addict. Consider adding these to your library. Those are gonna be some excellent resources. Thank you again, brother for just sharing your wisdom on this topic. And we want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. It is our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors. And I hope we've done that today with this conversation.